Is God real? Are the stories in the Bible true? I need answers. Welcome to A Closer Look with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to spend the next hour with us as we delve into the study of God's Word. We can't do what we don't know. Here at Shiloh, we want to spend time studying the Word so that we can rightly apply the Word to our daily living and make a difference in our community and in our world for Jesus Christ. Won't you join us now for a closer look into God's Word? And all the people said, Amen. All right. I want us to start a, well, we're starting a new Bible study. You, you can start with us or not, that's up to you. But, but we're starting a new series uh, today. And it's entitled, The Fruit of the Spirit. As such, we're not going to be, typically we, we take a book and we stay in one book and go through several chapters. Uh, this is more a topical study than an exegetical study in one book. So uh, we're not going to be in one particular book over the entirety of the study. But I do think it's important that we talk about the fruit of the Spirit uh, for several reasons. Uh, number one, I think it's important that Christians understand what it means to be a Christian. Uh, and, and some people uh, don't really have an appropriate appreciation for what Christianity means. It is more than simply having experienced water baptism. It is more than simply having one's membership in a local congregation. Uh, if we are a part of the body of Christ, then we ought to want to grow in our knowledge of who God is and of his expectation for us in our living. And part of that growth process, part of that maturity process is learning how to live and how to employ the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We are saved by the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, his atoning work at Calvary and his ensuring uh, resurrection, uh, E-N-S-U-R-I-N-G, his ensuring resurrection, his resurrection ensures our salvation. So we are saved and, and we are uh, heaven bound because of the work of Jesus Christ. But Jesus before he left told his disciples and through the Gospels tells us that we will not be left comfortless, but that we will be left with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the manifestation of Christ in our lives. And so the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of, of the believer is extremely important in our personal maturity, in our personal growth. It is extremely important in the growth of the church. So we're going to be talking about that over the next several weeks, and I hope that you will find this helpful and beneficial to you. Let's start with this. We're going to start with an introduction of the topic, and then we're going to deal with the introduction of the text. And I haven't told you what the text is yet. The text is Galatians chapter 5. You might want to know what that is, huh? Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26. 
But before we actually move into those verses, let's talk about the topic, the fruit of the Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit to bear fruit for Christ. It's important that you understand that. We don't bear fruit for us. We bear fruit for Christ. Our lives are not about us. And we're going to say that several times through this series. We're going to say that several times today, probably. But throughout this series, we're going to say that our lives are not about us. Once we come into the saving knowledge of Christ, we no longer live for ourselves. But we live for Christ. And it is important that we understand what the fruit of the Spirit is and how the fruit of the Spirit enhances our growth and our development. It's important that we understand that there is one Holy Spirit. And as such, there is one fruit of the Spirit. Anybody who says fruits, plural, of the Spirit, I know you mean well, but that is not correct. There is one fruit of the Spirit, and it is best described with the use of the word agape, or love. Agape is love without limit or without restriction. It is the love that Christ expressed for us. It is the love that Christ instructed us to have for one another. The fruit of the Spirit, as you will see when we get into the verses, into the text, the fruit of the Spirit is best described as agape. Now somebody's going to say, well there's a whole lot of stuff that comes behind agape. Uh, or comes behind love. Aren't those fruits of the Spirit as well? I just told you that it's not fruits. It's fruit. So, then what are those other descriptives? All that follows after love serve as expansions and details regarding that one fruit. Now, to help you understand that, follow me along and, and indulge me for a second, because I actually wrote this down. I thought, I thought it was so good that I wrote it down. So you'll get it in the notes. It would be the same as describing the fruit of an orange tree this way. If you go to an orange tree, what are you looking for? Oranges, right? Okay, you ain't looking for apples on an orange tree. You ain't looking for grapes on an orange tree. You ain't looking for bananas or lemons on an orange tree. You're looking for an orange, correct? So, it would be the same as describing the fruit of an orange tree this way. The fruit of an orange tree is an orange, comma, which is citrusy, orange in color, round in shape, covered in a non-edible shell, naturally subdivided into multiple sections, fibrous, filled with vitamin C, and sometimes seeded. I came up with eight things to describe an orange. I thought that was pretty good. Y'all might not, but, but, but I, I thought that was pretty good. If I 
if, if I say that, am I saying anything other than the fruit of an orange tree is an orange? No, I'm only saying that these are things that are associated with an orange. In the same way, what Paul says about the fruit of the Spirit is that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then he describes love using a whole lot of other things. Peace, joy, long-suffering, patience, things of that sort. And by the way, none of those is an exhaustive list. You can come up with other things that are included under love besides what Paul describes. Part of our problem is that we read some of these scriptures too literally. And there are some people who will say, well, there are only 11 fruits of the Spirit. And you'd be wrong. There aren't 11 fruits of the Spirit. There is one fruit of the Spirit. And you can describe it. You can enhance it. You can expand on the development of that fruit in many different ways. And that's not limited to the various things that are listed here in uh, Galatians chapter 5. But the key is understanding that what Paul describes are directly related to the singular fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is agape. So, if we don't have agape, if we don't reveal agape, if we don't live in agape, you may be saved, and you may be water baptized, and you may be a member of a church, but you are not revealing the fruit of the Spirit. Does anybody know saved folk who don't act like saved folk? Amen. Just by virtue of the fact that you are saved, that does not mean the saved folk always act like saved folk. Not all of it is your fault. Not all of it is, is, is because you don't want to act like saved folk. Some of it has to do with the fact that you have been poorly taught. Some of it has to do with the fact that you will not let go of certain things that were important in one phase of your life, but not important in another. When you were children, some of you, maybe most of you, 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 you ever spend any time skipping? Skipping, you know. Y'all know how to skip, right? I ain't going to try to show you because I ain't going to fall down in front of you. And you ain't calling no hospital for me and then say, well, he was trying to skip and it just didn't work out. That way. No, but, but, but you are familiar with skipping, what, what skipping looks like, how to do it, right? Don't try. I ain't asking nobody to try, but you are familiar with it. So children don't just walk and children don't just run. Sometimes children skip. That's fine. If you're 57 years old, I'm using my number. If you're 57 years old and you're still going around skipping, there's something seriously wrong with you. My point is this. Skipping is a good mode of movement for a 5-year-old, for a 10-year-old. Much past 10, 11, 12 years old, if you're running around skipping, something wrong. If you're 50, 60, 70 years old, now if you're 70 years old and you just want to prove to your grandchildren that you know how to skip, that's one thing. But do it in the privacy of your own home, please. And don't let them put it on Facebook. 
or Instagram. I don't need to see no video of how you twisted your knee <laughs> trying to, to reminisce your childhood and you skipped along. There are things that, 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 that work in one phase of our lives, in one stage of our lives, that are no longer relevant for other stages of our lives. Just as that is true about skipping and movement, that is true about our own spiritual development. At certain stages in our development, we tend to think that our development depends on us. And that's what legalism teaches. And most of us were raised in legalism. It wasn't called legalism. But we were raised that way. That, that's the crux of the problem in the book of Galatians. That, that's what Paul is dealing with. The, 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 the contrast between living uh, in the flesh, as, as it is described, or living in the spirit. Living in the flesh, Paul says, is legalism. And legalism had its place, but it's, it's no longer viable for those who are in Christ. And I know that you were raised in legalism because I was raised in legalism. And legalism is this belief that somehow you have to do certain things, not because you are saved, but in order to be saved and to maintain your salvation. The truth of the matter is our salvation and I know we know this intellectually, but we don't seem to know it behaviorally. Our salvation has nothing to do with us. Our salvation is solely by means of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We are saved by grace through faith, the same Paul says. And this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not of works. And then he tells you why it's important that you know that. So that no one can boast. Well, let me, let, let me just put a little addendum to the fact that no one can boast. Not only can no one boast, there's a reason why no one can boast. That is, nobody can live up to the law. Nobody keeps all of the law. And to break any part of the law is to break the law in its totality. St. Paul says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. St. Paul says, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. St. Paul says that uh, there is none righteous, no, not one. In other words, in case you think you, you don't fall inside the, 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 the none, no, not one. None of us are right. He includes himself in that none. In fact, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. So, so, so it's important for us to acknowledge that we are not saved because of us. And yet, much of our early church life was spent in trying to live up to a certain standard of behavior in order to earn, merit, our salvation. I know this because just like we learn God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, we were also taught the Ten Commandments. And we spent our time trying to live up 
to the Ten Commandments. I often wonder why do we spend so much time talking about the Ten Commandments when when Jesus was asked, when, when, yes, I said that right, when, comma, when Jesus was asked about the commandments, he didn't list any of the ten. Lord, which is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says on these two hang all the law and prophets. Somebody's going to say, well, isn't the first one the same as the first commandment? No, the first commandment is I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. The word love is not included in the command. It says you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, you shall reverence me first. You shall make sure that I am first on your priority list. But Jesus says, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, and everything else hinges on that. Well, Paul agrees with Jesus when he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And we must recognize that the love that he's talking about is love that comes first from him. It is vertical first. It descends from God to us. And then it becomes horizontal as it becomes our responsibility to show that love toward one another. And you don't show that love simply by keeping a set of rules and regulations. You don't merit salvation. You can't earn salvation. And let me add this. You don't want to. You might think you want to. But you don't, because at some point, the rules and the regulations no longer fit within the scheme of what it is that you want to do. There are people that you don't want to love. There are people you don't even want to like. And, and, and so if, if it becomes a matter of, of legalism and living up to an arbitrary standard, then at some point you're going to say, well, you know, I keep most of them, but this one I do without. And, and, and on a proportionate basis, if, if I'm keeping 93% of them, then the other 7% can go by the wayside. Jesus doesn't act like that. And Jesus has a different expectation of us. He doesn't, he doesn't give you a list of things that you have to do. He gives you one thing that you have to do. Love. And he says that if you are in the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, and if the fruit of the Holy Spirit is made manifest in your life, then that fruit is represented, it is shown, it is revealed to us by our love, first for God, and then through our service for one another. So then, there are prerequisites for bearing this fruit. First, we must be willing to die to this world. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. That means the old has died. 
Behold, all has become new. So the first prerequisite for living in the spirit and bearing fruit is that we die to this world. What does death to this world mean? It means that we are no longer encumbered by, bound to, or concerned about worldly things. Do we still live in the world? Yes. But we are no longer only interested in worldly stuff. We're interested in divine stuff. We're interested in that which lasts. Is that not what Jesus told us to do? Set our affections not on the things of this world, but set our affection on things which are above, which come from Christ the Father. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Your Father knows that you have need of these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other things will be added to you as well. So first, we must die to this world. And second, we must make the commitment that we are going to abide in Christ. And abide in Christ means that Christ is always, 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 always on the throne of your heart. Because where Christ is on the throne of your heart, sin has no place. Whenever we sin, whenever we come short, it is because we have removed Christ from the throne of our hearts. I tell you this all the time. There's a reason why saved people sin. Saved people sin not because they have lost their salvation, but because they have moved God from being on the throne of their hearts. You want God on the throne of your heart on Sunday for a couple of hours. But, 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 but when you leave here, sometimes you want to be back in control. Somebody says something you don't like, you want somebody else to be in control besides the Lord. Because the Lord says, says something crazy like, turn the other cheek. You don't want to do that. You, 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 you want to say something to somebody. You might even want to do something. Amen. That, yes. That, that's a Hattie Smith term, if I ever heard one. Lay your religion down. She used to say that from time to that. That's my grandmother, for those who don't know who I'm talking about. Uh, but, but we have to be careful about that. We have to abide in Christ, meaning that he has to always be on the throne of our hearts. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. That is the indwelling. It is, it, it, it is what Jesus promised to us. That if I go, I will send another comforter. He will be with you forever. The spirit of truth. I will not leave you comfortless. I will not leave you as orphans. He will always be with you. But the fact that the Holy Spirit is always with us does not mean that the Holy Spirit is always in control. That's the infilling of the Holy Spirit. You should not be comfortable or satisfied. Let me use the word satisfied. You should not be satisfied with just having the presence of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You should also want the control of the Holy Spirit or the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is, con- is in control, 
The fruit of the Spirit is made manifest. And how do we know that the fruit of the Spirit is made manifest? Because the Holy Spirit heightens our humanity by perfecting our weaknesses. We just got through talking about the suffering Christian and, 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 and we were reading from uh, 2 Corinthians and, and, and we dealt with Paul and his thorn in the flesh. And Paul got to the place where he understood that his thorn was a gift from God. He called it a gift from God. And he said this about it. He said, when I learned about the, the magnitude of the gift, what I discovered was when I am weak, then I am strong because I learned to rely less and less on me and more and more on him. And when I learned to rely, when we learn to rely more on the Lord, he perfects our weaknesses. So that even when we want to do stuff, even when we're itching to do stuff, even when it's right on the tip of your tongue, you can't do it. Because the spirit yeah. is in control. You ever ball up your fist down, down, down by your waist where can't nobody see it balled up? And, and, and you really want to strike somebody with it and, and the spirit says, let it go, 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 let it go. And you, Lord, do I really? Yeah, let it go, let it go. That's what happens. He perfects our weaknesses. So it's important that we learn how to live in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. There are at least four things that are important for us to ask and keep in mind as we go through this study. Number one, does our behavior exalt Christ or exalt self? If it exalts Christ, then we're, then we're moving in the fruit of the Spirit. If it exalts self, then we're not. Number two, does it build up the church? In other words, does it make the church better? And, and, and you need to stop thinking about church only in terms of your local congregation. You need to think of the church as being the universal body of Christ. Does it build us up or does it tear us down? If it builds us up, then it is the fruit of the Spirit. Is it, number three, is it scripturally based? I get concerned about people who, who, who grab hold to things that can't be supported by Scripture. We ought to be aware of what the Bible says. We ought to be knowledgeable of what the Bible says, which means that we ought to be studying the Scripture on a regular basis. So that when we hear things, see things, are tempted to believe things, we can measure what we are tempted to believe against what the Word says. And if we can find no scriptural support for what it is that we are tempted to believe, then maybe we should leave that thing alone. And number four, does it square with history? or with the experience of others. I say quite often, the Bible is remarkably redundant. There, there, I'm always concerned when somebody says, I'm gonna show you something new. I'm gonna show you something that, that ain't nobody ever shown you before. There's nothing new about the gospel. 
we, we, we're here today on, on a Wednesday at 12.30 hearing the same thing that we've heard a thousand times before. Why do we continue? If I've heard it a thousand times before, why do I continue to come? Because I need to be refreshed. Because I need to be renewed. Because I need to be reminded. That's why. Walking is a remarkably redundant thing. I, I, ain't, I ain't never seen nobody yet who said, well, I'm tired of walking. Well, maybe you do. But, but walking is, is redundant. It's putting one foot in front of the other. Its redundancy does not keep us from, from continuing to do it. Cooking is a redundant thing, especially if you cook the same thing six days out of seven. We had rice every day of the week when I was a child. Rice was a staple. Ain't but one way to cook rice, according to my grandmother. And that is you take rice, you put it in a, in a pot, and you boil it. And you put a little salt on it, and you don't, you don't even put no butter on it. You just put salt on it. And, and if she told you to cook rice, you had to cook it her way. Or else you had to throw it out and start all over. Okay. It's a remarkably redundant process. The redundancy of it does not in any way diminish the value of what it is that you are doing. Scripture is redundant. Agape love is a redundant thing. Serving one another is a redundant thing. The fact that I did it yesterday does not take away from my responsibility to do it today. I helped somebody yesterday, Lord. That means I got to do it again today? Yep. And if you have a tomorrow, you have to do it then as well. So these are the things that we have to be looking for. Uh, when you get your notes, you're going to see an introduction to the text. Uh, that we're talking about. Just turn to Galatians chapter 5. I want us to focus on verses 13 through 26. I'm running out of time. But in order to get the right context, you need to look at the first 12 verses of Galatians because uh, the first 12 verses build to what is said beginning in verse 13. So, Christ has set us free to live a free life. So take your stand. Never again let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. I'm emphatic about this. The moment any one of you submits to circumcision or any other rule-keeping system, at that same moment, Christ's hard-won gift of freedom is squandered. I repeat my warning. The person who accepts the ways of circumcision trades all the advantages of the free life in Christ for the obligations of the slave life of the law. I suspect you would never intend this. But this is what happens. When you attempt to live by your own religious plans and projects, you are cut off from Christ. You fall out of grace. Meanwhile, we expectantly wait for a satisfying relationship with the Spirit. For in Christ, neither our most conscientious religion nor disregard of religion amounts to anything. What matters is something far more interior, faith expressed in love. Do you see that? Do you understand what he just said? For in Christ, neither our most conscientious religion 
nor disregard of religion amounts to anything. What matters is something far more interior, faith expressed in love. You were running superbly. Who cut in on you, deflecting you from the true course of obedience? This detour doesn't come from the one who called you into the race in the first place. And please don't toss this off as insignificant. It only takes a minute amount of yeast, you know, to permeate an entire loaf of bread. Deep down, the master has given me confidence that you will not defect. But the one who is upsetting you, whoever he is, will bear the divine judgment. As for the rumor that I continue to preach the ways of circumcision, as I did in those pre-Damascus road days, that is absurd. Why would I still be persecuted then? If I were preaching that old message, no one would be offended. If I mentioned the cross now and then, it would be so watered down it wouldn't matter one way or the other. Why don't these agitators, obsessive as they are about circumcision, go all the way and castrate themselves? All right. Verses 1 through 12 set the stage for what it means to live in the fruit of the Spirit. What he explains in verses 1 through 12 is that you are free from the law. If you are in Christ, you are free from the law. You are free from legalism. You are free from any kind of system of merit for your own salvation. No longer should you concern yourselves with that because he emphasizes that you cannot merit it. That's why he says it doesn't matter whether you are most conscientious of your religion or completely disregard your religion because that's not the key to your salvation. The key to your salvation is a heart commitment to Christ. Now, he builds that up to say in verse 13, now that you know what you're free from, let me tell you what you're free for. Now that you know what your freedom means, it means that you cannot merit your salvation, nor should you be trying to merit your salvation. Then know what you are free for. Know what God expects you to do with your freedom. It is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you will be annihilating each other. And where will your precious freedom be then? These verses are vital to understanding what it means to truly walk in the Spirit. It means that we recognize our call, our charge to serve one another in love. And that love has to be without limit and without restriction. 
You read this from the King James Version or from one of the uh, other uh, uh, more contemporary translations, and it emphasizes a lot on sexual activity. I don't want you to think that that's the whole crux of the matter. It emphasizes sexual activity because that was a problem in the Galatian church. That might not be your problem. Sex might not be your problem. Gambling might be your problem. If gambling is your problem, and by that I mean you take your rent money and go gamble with it, or you take your water bill money and go gamble with it, you got a problem. Yeah. Gambling might not be your problem. Substance abuse might be your problem. If you wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning looking for a beer, you got a problem. If you can't be straight until you've had your hit in the morning, you got a problem. Substance abuse might not be your problem. You might just be a nasty personality person. I know, I know it's none of you. I'm talking to somebody on TV. I ain't talking to nobody in here. But, 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 but you, you might just have a nasty personality. You bite everybody's head off. You snap at folk. You never smile. Ne never give a person a an inviting look like, hi, I'd like to talk to you. No, stay away from me. Get as far away from me as you possibly can. That might be your problem. I don't know what your individual problem is. Don't get hooked up on the sex part. Because the sex part is specific to the Galatian church. And sometimes we read things in such a way as to say, well, if that's not my problem, then I'm, I'm good. No, it just means that ain't your problem. It means that you might be suffering from a different problem. Some of y'all got an arrogance problem. You just think that the world revolves around you. Think you're smarter than everybody else. Think, 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 think you're more articulate than everybody else. Think that you're more successful than everybody else. If, that, if that's what you really think, you got a problem. Some of you have the opposite problem. You think you're the worst thing in the world. And even when folks try to tell you how wonderful you are, well, that's really not who I am. Everybody's got a problem in their human, in their humanness. We all have issues. It's not just the sex issue. The sex issue was listed in the Galatian churches because that was a problem with the churches in Galatia and the, and the culture of that day. Don't get hooked into the sex thing. Recognize that it's about humanity versus spirituality. And when you see it from that standpoint, then you can plug in what your weakness is. And you can say, well, this scripture can help me. And, and, and the crux of the scripture is simply this. If we are in Christ and if we are exhibiting the fruit of the spirit, then we will learn how to serve one another in love. My counsel is this, verse 16. Live freely, animated and motivated by God's spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. For there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with a free spirit, just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical. 
so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the Spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? Question. What happens when we no longer wish to abide by the law? Inevitably, all of us at some point or another don't want to abide by the law. Y'all like the Ten Commandments, right? I've already shown y'all half a dozen times that all y'all flunk when it comes to the Ten Commandments. Uh, y'all barely scored two out of ten, but, but, but I, and I'm giving you two. Uh, let's just take one of them. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Against that. I started to say thou shalt not steal, but that might offend somebody. <laughs> but, 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 but if I stick with thou shalt not bear false witness, translation, you won't lie. Yeah. I know I got everybody on that one. <laughs> so, you, 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 you're a saved Christian, you, you've been water baptized, and you try to live your life by this command, by, by this rule, that I will not lie. Under, under no circumstance will I lie. In every situation, I will always tell the truth. And by so doing, I, I will show my, 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 my merit of, of righteousness that I'm seeking from the Lord. What happens in that moment that you don't want to tell the truth? Tell, tell, tell me. What, 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 what happens in that moment? Paul says these two ways of life are antithetical so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Some days you don't feel like telling the truth. My daddy was the pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. My mama was a Sunday school teacher and a choir member in Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. And on Saturday mornings when the phone would ring, they would tell us to answer the phone and say they ain't home. <laughs> now, technically, you could say they didn't lie. <laughs> but they told us. Do you understand my point? There are some days, there are some moments when, when you don't just want to tell the truth all the time. How do I look in this suit? And you think I look terrible. I think you look nice, Rev. You look good. All y'all lying y'all just look like you're losing some weight. <laughs> <laughs> We, 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 we fall victim to those moments when we don't want to always tell the truth. And that is what Paul describes here as living at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel, he says, on any given day. I say at any given moment within the day. Where does that come from? That comes from an idea that somehow we can live up to the standard. When life should have taught you by now, I'm, I'm looking at folk who are 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. Life ain't taught you yet that you can't live up to the standard. 
Life has not shown you that, 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 that you don't meet the standard. So if you can't meet that standard, that's set apart by law, Paul says there is a better standard that all of us can live up to. And that standard has nothing to do with rules keeping or keeping the law. It has to do with one thing and one thing only. Living in the love of Christ. Submitting to the love that he has shown toward us and seeking to show that love toward one another. Now, somebody's going to say, well, I, I, I don't always show love, but are you always seeking to, to show love? Here's the thing. When you make that the standard, then there are no longer rules that you have to worry about. Sometimes rules get in the way of doing the most loving thing. Sometimes rules get in the way of doing what's right. Jesus was asked the question about why, why, why does he not observe uh, this thing about Sabbath? observance. And, and, and he, he ended by saying, you have to recognize that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But in part of his explanation, he talks about the fact that David and his uh, friends raided the temple granary and opened the temple granary, grain that was set aside just for the temple priests, and they ate of, of, of the temple grain because they were hungry. And his point was simple. The rule said this was just for them. Yeah. But right said it was for anybody who was hungry. Yeah. You haven't recognized that sometimes rules say one thing and right says something else? Well, when, 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 when you find right up against the rules, which one are you supposed to do? You're supposed to do what's right. Well, if I do what's right, I might have to suffer a penalty for that. You doggone right you will. You absolutely will have to suffer a penalty for it. But the penalty is worth doing what's right because God has called us to do what's right, not to be concerned with what the rules are. And you can't use the rules as an excuse to escape the responsibility of doing what, I do what was right, but the rules say I can't do it. Do you really think Jesus would be pleased by that? Do you really think that that, that that is what Christ expects of us? To hide behind rules and regulations rather than to do what is right in the sight of God? Quit worrying about the rules, Paul says. Because if you worry about the rules, you're going to live an erratic life. And you're going to live a life that is rooted in selfishness. Now, I want you to notice, the message version translates the passage to refer to selfishness and not merely the flesh. My counsel is this, live freely, animated and motivated by God's spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. King James Version says, the, the flesh. And the problem with that is when we read the flesh, we think only in terms of skin and bone and muscle and sinew. But when the message version says selfishness, it refers to an attitude. 
And the attitude that, 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 that is lifted is an attitude that is antithetical to the service of Christ. You can't be selfish and be submitted to Christ at the same time. Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself. The very first thing he says, you must deny self, take up your cross and follow me. So you can't be selfish, you can't be in the flesh and be all about you and then serve the Lord at the same time. Because serving the Lord means sometimes putting yourself at risk. Putting yourself outside your comfort zone. Putting yourself in a place where you don't always get the benefit of what you're doing. Sometimes we lay a foundation in our service for, for, for to others that we won't ever see the benefit from. But someone else will reap from the seed that you planted. If we don't recognize the value in that, then we're not living in the Spirit. Paul says it's important that you recognize that consistency comes when we consistently make up our minds that we're going to live in Christ. Seven minutes. It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on. This is not an exhaustive list. It's important that you read that. Don't, don't think that that's, that's all. He's saying that there's more that I could say, but I'll stop there. I think I've made my point. Then he says, this isn't the first time I've warned you. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. If we want kingdom citizenship, we cannot live according to the standards of legalism, of rules keeping. We cannot live according to selfishness because selfishness devolves into all of these things and more. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life able to marshal and direct our energies widely, wisely. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessities is killed off for good, crucified. 
Since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure that we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. That means we will not compare ourselves with each other as if one of us were better and another worse. We have far more interesting things to do with our lives. Each one of us is an original. Just like the negative descriptions are not exhaustive, the positive descriptions are not exhaustive either. There's more that can be added to the list. He gives the list as a sampling of what it means to live in the spirit. What is it that we should lift from this? We lift from this that no longer are we allowing ourselves to live according to human desire, to human want but we live according to Christ's desire for us. What does it mean when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives? First of all, it means that we have freely entered into a decision to become a part of the body of Christ. We have freely decided to make Jesus first in our lives. But second, right on the heels of that, once we have made that decision, it means that every other decision is made for us by Jesus. You don't get to make any other decision. I've used this example before, so forgive me if, if, if you've heard this before. When you en enlist in military service, there's no draft anymore. You, you, you choose to go to the military. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, whatever branch of service you go into. You choose to go into military service. But once you make the choice to go into military service, the military service makes all the other decisions for you. You, you, you have freely yielded your will over to that branch of military service. So that if, if, if the Air Force says you will go here, that's where you go. If the Army says you will go there, that's where you go. You freely chose to enter into the service. But once you enter into the service, the service makes all the other decisions. Nobody makes you become a Christian. I know somebody can make you get baptized, but nobody can make you become a Christian. You do know that just getting wet doesn't make you a Christian, right? Amen. You, 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 you come into your relationship with Christ of your own volition, of your own accord, of your own free will. But once you are in Christ, every other decision is made not by you, but by him. And that's why the old folks say, I'll go where you tell me to go. And I'll do what you tell me to do. And I'll say what you tell me to say. And I'll be what you want me to be. Because it's an acknowledgement that, that, that while I freely chose to come into this, once I'm here, I'm now completely submitted to you. And here's the thing. Let's say the army says you go to Germany and you say you don't want to go and you say no I think I'm going to stay in the States you, you, you are considered absent without leave 
and there are consequences for that absence. There are penalties that have to be paid for that absence. My point is this, you can come into Christ and he gives you direction as to where you go and you can say, no Lord, I ain't gonna do that. There are consequences for making that decision. Now, some, some churches think, y'all already packing up. I got 30 seconds, give me my 30 seconds. <laughs> some churches teach that the consequence is that you lose your salvation. That's what some Pentecostals teach. That, that's, what, that's what the Church of God in Christ teaches. We as Baptists don't believe that you lose your salvation, but we do believe that you have to pay a price. That, 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 that for quenching the Holy Spirit and for grieving the Holy Spirit, quenching means that you fail to do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. Grieving means that you do what the Holy Spirit tells you not to do. Flip sides of the same coin. That, that when you do that, there are consequences for that decision. And the consequence is you become estranged from the fellowship of God. You don't lose your salvation, but you become estranged from the fellowship of God. And God says, you want to go out there and wander on your own? Go on out there. In a minute. You go... Ever since I can remember, uh, my family has always been involved in music. When we were young, uh, my mom and my dad played uh, at our family church, and we would essentially provide the music for it. So uh, as far as that much uh, goes, it's, it's just always been in my life uh, in, in some form or fashion. Started uh, with my family at first, uh, and then it just kind of grew. Uh, when I, At the school that I, uh, I went to, there was a need for musicians, so it didn't matter that I was in second grade or third grade. Uh, could you play the piano? Yes, <laughs> we need you for a service. So, um, a lot of a lot of it, I was doing it, and I guess I fell in love with it before I knew that it wasn't something that everybody did, just because I grew up with it. This is Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, inviting you to give consideration to our Early Learning Academy as you look for a place for your pre-K, kindergarten, or first grader. We would love to have the opportunity to serve your child. We have outstanding facilities and a wonderful staff of certified teachers itching to serve you. Come by and share with us as soon as you can.